Amen. We'll take your Bibles and turn with me again to Romans, I mean, not Romans, Revelation chapter 3. There's some great stuff in Romans 3. I'm just not preaching it this morning. Revelation chapter 3, we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 13, Revelation 3, 7 through 13. I want to continue to encourage you. We only have a couple of weeks left in this, uh, and when we started this series, I told you we were also going to enter into a time of prayer and fasting, and we talked last week about, again, why that's so important for a church to do. I want to uh, ask you to continue these last couple weeks to be faithful. Uh, Remember that every week we're posting a prayer guide. There's one that's already posted this morning for uh, this week. It's showing you how to pray for this week. Just continue to do that. We're hoping that God takes these letters to these churches and reveals to us what it is that we need to do and how he wants to change us. And uh, your prayers in that regard are really, really important to our church. So please be praying. And if you've made that commitment to fasting just a couple of more weeks, I was uh, wise enough to end the corporate prayer and fasting before Thanksgiving. So you can thank me for that. Not that you wouldn't be willing to do that. I just didn't want to ask you to do that. I don't know why it is I remember this. Uh, It's interesting to me the things you remember when you're a kid and the things you don't remember. But I have a vivid memory of going to a University of Oklahoma football game with my older brother, Scott. I, I was about 10 years old, and he's 10 years older than me. He was about 20 years old, and I don't remember much about the game. I, I don't remember who we were playing. I don't remember who won. Uh, I don't remember much of anything. I do remember that we sat in the opposing um, team's student section. There's a lot you learn as a 10-year-old by sitting in the opposing team's student section. I do, I do remember that. I also remember feeling this incredible sense of invincibility as a 10-year-old. I mean, I've thought about this so many times in my life. I just remember feeling so courageous as if I could say anything and be okay, that I could smart off to anyone in the student section who was 10 years older than me and everything was going to be okay. I could say whatever, I could do whatever. And as a 10-year-old, this is hard for you to imagine, I was good at that. And I really felt like I could just do it and it was going to be fine. I just felt a sense of invincibility. And the reason is, is because I I was with my big brother. And you know, when you're 10 years old and your brother's 20, you're pretty convinced he's the toughest guy ever. And you're also convinced that he's just going to kind of do whatever needs to be done in order to take care of you. And you just kind of walk with a different swagger and you feel a little bit more courageous when your brother is with you. And I remember a deep sense of having that feeling for some strange reason, I felt that way. Now, I say for some strange reason on purpose because as I look back on that moment, I should not have felt that way. (laughs) I mean, there's no reasonable understanding for why I felt so courageous that day. Now, listen, my brother Scott, he's a great guy. I love him. He's one of the most generous and thoughtful and kind and gracious people you know. There's three brothers in my family. Um, Scott, the oldest, is everybody's favorite. uh, Stephen, the middle one, is Jesus' favorite, and I'm mom's favorite, and that's just kind of how it goes in our family. My brother, everybody loves my brother Scott. He's great. He's just kind and gracious. He's just not what you'd refer to as a tough guy. I mean, you don't look at Scott and think, I bet that guy could win a bar fight. No one's ever thought that about him. I, he's, really, he's really more of a lover than a fighter, I think. It's just not his thing. And so I look back on that and I think, I don't know why I felt that way. I should not have felt that way, but I did. And, and the truth is, 
there's just something great about that, isn't it? Just this, this feeling that, man, I'm going to be okay because someone has my back, and if anything happens, they're going to take me. There's no doubt he would have if he needed to. There's great doubt whether he could have actually defended me. But what a wonderful, what a wonderful feeling. Let me tell you something. That's exactly the feeling the church at Philadelphia needed to feel. As they were trying to be a faithful people of God, as they were trying to advance the kingdom of God in difficult circumstances, what God wanted them to feel is a sense of invincibility. A type of courage that would have been unreasonable to anyone who did not know the Lord. He wanted them to walk with a bit of humble swagger, with a sense that there's nothing that could touch them unless it first went through the Lord. They were a small church. They were a church of little influence. It tells us that they were a church that had but little power in verse 8. They, they just didn't have a lot of influence. They didn't have a lot of affluence. And the worst part is, is that they had some really strong opposition by a very powerful group of people. They don't seem to have any real internal struggles. This is only the second of the seven churches in which Jesus has nothing negative to say about them. As a preacher, I'm really thankful after last week in which Jesus had nothing positive to say to come to a text where now the Lord has nothing negative to say. He's not getting on to them. He doesn't see some glaring error, but he does know them and he understands them. And he knows that they're a church that's weak and struggling with not a lot of resources, but a church that has in front of them an incredible open door for ministry and the Lord knows the only way they'll ever walk through that open door is if they have a deep-rooted sense of courage. You know, that kind of courage you would feel if you had a big brother with you. And honestly, I, I think that's a good way to think about this. After all, Hebrews 2.11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 says that we are co-heirs with Christ, meaning that as sons of God, we receive the inheritance that belongs to Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. And because of his sacrifice and death on the cross, he has brought us into the family, and he has brought us in as children of God as well. There should be, among the people of God, a marked sense of courage. There should be a sense of invincibility knowing that the only way that anyone will ever harm us is if they go through the Lord. The only way that anyone will ever kill us is if the Lord allows them to. This should be the mark of the people of God. But I think you and I would agree that's probably not the way most of us feel. Most of us did not wake up this morning feeling lion-hearted. We, we didn't feel as if we could do anything, as if there's nothing that could oppose us. We didn't wake up with a sense of incredible courage. You're probably not sitting there with a sense of invincibility this morning, even though because of who you are in Christ, that's exactly how you should feel and the way God wants you to feel. It's exactly what this church so desperately needed to hear. If you're there in Revelation 3, say amen. Listen as I begin in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon, Jesus says. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord is speaking life into this church. His goal of this letter is to speak courage into them. Now, the question is, how is it that the Lord is going to fill them with, with courage? How is it the Lord would fill us with courage? How, how can we walk with that sense of invincibility, which we should have? And the reason is this, is because he is going to boost our confidence in him. You See, this is where you get the difference between self-help and following Jesus Christ. You see, what a lot of people are going to tell you, what the world is going to tell you, is you need to feel better about yourself. What I would say is you need to feel better about Jesus. You don't need to feel better about your power. You need to feel better about his power. You do need to have good and right and healthy thoughts of yourself, but those thoughts don't come from who you are. They come from who Christ is. And through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, if you have come to him by faith, you have been united with him. Therefore, what is true of him is true of you. So feel right and good and have a healthy sense of self-worth because of who Jesus is. So that's what he's saying. Listen, Jesus is saying, I want to boost you with courage, but I'm not going to look at you and tell you how great you are. I'm going to look at you and tell you how great Jesus is and then remind you that he is on your side. He's got your back. He's your big brother. So what does this text tell us about Jesus that would give us the type of courage we need to be ablaze with courage? four different things it tells us. I encourage you to write this down. First of all, the greatness of Jesus is unsurpassed. The greatness of Jesus is unsurpassed. You say, where do you get that? Well, I get it from verses seven and eight. The greatness of Jesus is unsurpassed. Now remember, every time one of these letters is written by Jesus, he begins by taking us back to Revelation 1 and reminding us of the vision of Jesus. Saying to us over and over and over, what matters more than anything for the church of Jesus Christ is have a right understanding of Jesus. This is why every time we sing, every time we preach, what we're trying to do is make much of Jesus. We're trying to get you to love Jesus. We're trying to get you to see Jesus. We want you to be excited about Jesus. Why? Because the degree to which you understand Jesus and know Jesus and love Jesus is the degree to which you will look like Jesus and want to obey Jesus. I am fully confident the more I can get you to know Jesus, the more you're going to love him. I'm fully confident of that. The more you know him, the more you're going to love him. So Jesus keeps taking us back to this vision of himself. And I was just thinking this morning as I was meditating on this text, it's important for us when we're reading our Bibles, hopefully on a consistent basis, we're not just opening our Bibles saying, Lord, what is it that I need to do from this text? You need to do that. 
because every text of scripture demands a response. But listen, what we also need to do is say, Lord, what do you want me to see about you from this text of scripture? We're opening this word every week and hopefully every day that you might see a picture of Christ. And so it is painted for the church in Philadelphia, a vision of Jesus Christ in which it says here in verse seven, he is the holy one, the true one, and the one who has the keys. He is the holy one. Well, certainly that's a statement of his divinity. He is in fact God. It is a statement of his purity. He is in fact without sin. But I think it's a little deeper than that. And listen, I'm gonna give you a big word this morning, but I trust since you got an extra hour of sleep, you're gonna be fine with this. I wouldn't do this on a normal Sunday, but you just got here so early and look so fresh, and most of you. Um, the word this morning is transcendence. Transcendence. This is a really important word when we talk about the Lord, and it's a word that we need to understand when we see that he is the Holy One, because transcendence means that Jesus exists above all and is independent from all. He exists above everything and is independent from everything. He needs nothing to exist. He is above all things. So in the list of the top 25, Jesus is number one and there's no one else on the list. He is transcendent above all. There is no one greater. He has unsurpassed greatness. When he says that he is the holy one, he is distinct from everyone else. There is no one else like our God. No one compares to him. No one compares to him in his love, in his grace, in his kindness, in his joy, in the life and the truth that he offers. No one compares to him. He is transcendent. He exists and is above all. He wants the church to understand, first of all, that there is no one like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is above all and exists above all. He is the holy one. He is also the true one, which means it is impossible for him to lie. Hebrews 6, 18 says that. He cannot go against his character. It is impossible for God to lie. We talked a few weeks ago about how the devil says nothing true. He is the father of lies. He has no truth in him, which means nothing he says is true. To the very opposite extent, everything Jesus says is true. That's important right now. Listen, because he's about to tell us that you need to be a little bit more courageous in sharing the gospel and advancing the kingdom of Christ. And he's gonna give us all these reasons why we should do that and feel courageous. But before we believe that, we have to understand he is the God that cannot lie. Everything that he is saying about himself is true. And what he wants us to understand at the beginning is there is no one as great as him. His greatness is unsurpassed. He is the holy one. He is the true one. And then look at the end of verse seven. He is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, this is uh, taken from Isaiah chapter 22. Write that down. Don't turn there. Write that down. You can look at it later. But it's in a reference to a man named Eliakim, who was a servant in the house of King Hezekiah, king of Judah. Now, the Lord took away the keys from another servant and gave the keys to Eliakim. And the text talks about the way in which God giving the keys to Eliakim meant that he is the one that has the authority to open doors, to close doors. He is the ruler of the house, in a sense. Keys, all throughout Scripture, are a statement of authority. Authority, whoever has the keys is in charge. 
Now, this picture of Eliakim in Isaiah 22 is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes and accomplishes the work of the Father, ascends back to heaven, he is given the keys of the kingdom. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. He, as the one who has the keys, has ultimate authority. He opens and no one closes. He closes and no one opens. So this Isaiah 22 is pointing us to Jesus Christ in the fact that every bit of authority in heaven and earth is Jesus Christ. It belongs to him. Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Ephesians 1.22, he says, all dominion, all power, all authority in this age and in the age to come, in the heavenly places, in the earthly realm, he is over everything. So, so do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, do you know the one who has your back? Do you know the one who is your big brother? Do you know the one who has saved you? He is the holy one, the transcendent one. He is the true one. He is the one that has all authority. And when he opens a door, no one can close it. When Jesus opens a door for you, no one else can close it. He is the true and holy and transcendent one. But look at what it says in verse 8. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door. So we already said Jesus has the keys. He opens the door and closes it. And now he says this, and what I've done for you is I've opened a door for you. Now there's, there's two ways open doors are used in scripture. The first is the open door of salvation. The second is the open door of service. You can see the open door of salvation in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, when you get this picture of a broad way and a narrow way and a small gate and a big gate, the fact that there is an open door to come into the kingdom through this narrow, small gate of Jesus Christ. And so God is offering this morning to you the opportunity to come into a relationship with God by trusting Jesus Christ. At the end of our time together, I am gonna plead with you that if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ and accepted that opportunity to walk through the door of salvation by trusting Christ, you need to do that today. But I don't think that's the open door he's talking about. They have already walked through that open door. The Lord already opened the door. They are the church. They have walked through it. I think what he's talking about is the open door of service. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, he's talking about his ministry in Ephesus and says, a wide door of opportunity has been opened to us. Here's what, here's what Jesus is saying to the church at Philadelphia. He's saying, the one who has the keys to open doors has opened a door for you. He has given you some wide open opportunities for evangelistic ministry. He has called you to advance the kingdom, open doors all around, but you must have the courage to walk through the open doors that God has given you. Listen, we read Colossians 4 a minute ago before we prayed. I'm absolutely convinced if you were to spend the next seven days praying for God to open a door for you to share the gospel, he would open a door for you. I guarantee you that. The question is not whether he'd open the door. The question is this, will you have the courage to walk through it? I mean, how many times have we had a wide open door, an opportunity to share the gospel, and we've said absolutely nothing? All of us have had those moments. He's saying, I have opened a wide door of opportunity for you. Now understand that I have all authority. I am true, and I am holy, and I am righteous. So because of who I am, make that fill you with confidence to walk through the doors and share the gospel. Advance the kingdom of Christ. You know, there is a clear connection between the authority of Jesus and our courage in evangelism. The way I know that is because before Jesus gives the Great Commission, he says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. You are to go, advancing the kingdom of Christ, filled with confidence because the one who sent you out and the one who is going with you is the authoritative one. 
He is the one that has all power and all authority and all dominion. And that picture of Christ, of his unsurpassed glory and greatness, is to be so big in your life that you never fail to walk with courage. Because that's who he is, and he's yours, and he's with you. His greatness is unsurpassed. The next thing he wants us to see about himself is this. His commitment is unending. The greatness of Jesus is unsurpassed. The commitment of Jesus is unending. Write that down. The commitment of Jesus is unending. He has made an unending, eternal, everlasting commitment to his children. Now he says in verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. Now, you might remember a couple of weeks ago at the church in Smyrna, interestingly, the only other church that Jesus has nothing negative to say about, he also talks about the synagogue of Satan referring to the Jews. Now, Jesus is not an anti-Semite. He doesn't hate Jews. Can I remind you, Jesus is a Jew. I think we need to be reminded of that sometimes. I think we think Jesus looks like us. Jesus was a dark-skinned Middle Eastern Jew. He loves the Jews, but John chapter one tells us he came to his own people and his people did not receive him. Because they did not receive him, the gospel was then taken to the Gentiles who did receive him. And now the Jews, not all of them, the majority of the Jews during Jesus's time hated Jesus Christ and their synagogues, which were meant to be a place that was gonna receive the Messiah, now is a group of people who hate the Messiah and wanna do anything they can using their power and their influence and their affluence to take down the church of Jesus Christ. And so now Jesus looks at his people and the synagogue in which they're worshiping and calls it the synagogue of Satan, which in my mind is pretty much the worst thing Jesus could say about you. He says, this this synagogue, which was created by me to be a place in which I am exalted and lifted up, has now become a synagogue used by Satan because it is completely opposed to the work of God. And so here's the church of Jesus Christ trying to advance the kingdom And it's hard for us to understand this, but the most powerful religious group of the time is consistently going against them, trying to destroy them. So can we just, I tell my kids this all the time, that when, particularly when you're reading the Gospels or any kind of text like this, you've got to picture it. You've got to put yourself in it. So the picture here is of trying really hard as a weak, insignificant group of believers who have very little power to advance the kingdom of Christ when the most powerful group in the city is coming against you. So what does Jesus say to encourage them, to fill them with courage? He says this. He says, the Jews that are coming against you, the synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews, but they lie. He says this, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. That's an unbelievable statement. Now, it's it's hard to fully understand what this means. What we know is this from multiple places in Scripture. There is coming a day in which Jesus Christ is going to return, and we will return with him. And when he comes back, he will establish his kingdom on the earth. He will destroy all of his enemies and gather his people to himself. And in that time, we, this says this over and over in Scriptures, as the children of God, will rule and reign with Christ. 
We are so united with Christ that when they are bowing down to worship Jesus Christ, we will be with Christ and they will not be worshiping us at all. All of the attention will be on Jesus Christ. But the fact is, is there will be, here's the point, there will be absolute vindication for every believer who has lost something because of the cause of Christ. There there will be a day of vindication. And what he says to this church is, listen, You might die when you share the gospel. You might die. And they might appear to have the victory, but I want to assure you there will be a day, there is coming a day in which Jesus Christ is gonna return and he will vindicate you. He will destroy his enemies and demonstrate what I love about this passage. They will learn in that moment that I have loved you. Think about this. This is the most arrogant group of people who believe they are the covenant people of God and everyone who is following Jesus has been rejected by God. And Jesus says to this, one day I will show everyone that I have loved you. I'll show them. You say, well, how in the world is is Jesus gonna show everyone that he has loved us? Don't do it now, but go home and read Revelation 19. When Jesus comes back on a white horse with a sword in his hand, when he is going to destroy his enemies and about to establish his kingdom on earth, and behind him is a a myriad of different people on horses, you know who they are? It's us. It's us. We're with him. We're with him. And he will demonstrate at that moment that we are the loved and treasured people of God. There is an unending commitment that Jesus has for you. And listen, you might suffer for the cause of Christ in this life, but be assured of this. He has a never-ending commitment to you. He will vindicate you. And he will demonstrate that he loves you. What an unbelievable statement. One day. Oh, despised and small, insignificant church of Jesus Christ, everyone will know that I've loved you. You know, it's just sad to me. We, we spend so much time, listen, seeking the approval of so many people, so much energy trying to get their approval when Jesus just says this, listen, live for my approval. I love you, I'm with you, I'm committed to you, and one day everyone is gonna know how I feel about you. Live for the approval of Christ. He says, listen, my commitment is unending. His greatness is unsurpassed. His commitment is unending. Let me give you the third one. The presence of Jesus is unfailing. The presence of Jesus is unfailing. Get that down. His greatness is unsurpassed. His commitment is unending. His presence, the presence of Jesus is unfailing. I get that from verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you. From the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now listen, you got to stay with me here for just a minute. Are you all right? Extra hour of sleep still working? You good? You with me? Twelve of you, praise Jesus. Um, Most likely in verse 10, it appears, and no one knows exactly for sure, he's talking about the time of tribulation before the return of Christ. This seven-year period of great tribulation before the return of Christ. And the reason that's probably true is because in verse 10, look at it carefully. He says, you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial. And my first thought was that must be just a little trial that they're experiencing. But then he says this, that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So there seems to be this like massive whole world trial that is coming. So that that seems to be the case. Now, here's the issue we have, and this is where some of you are going to write me emails and call me and tell me I need to read the Left Behind books. The issue is this. (laughs) 
The issue in verse 10 is this. When he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial, that is not a phrase ever used to refer to being removed from something. As opposed, it is a word used to mean to be sustained through something. To be sustained through something. Well, you say, I don't know that. Well, the exact same phrase is used in John 17, verse 15, in Jesus' high priestly prayer when he says this to the Lord. He says to the Father, I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. I'm asking that you keep them from the evil one. Meaning, in these times of trials and suffering, what I'm asking for you to do, Lord, I'm asking for you to keep them, to sustain them, to give them strength, to give them courage, because it's gonna be hard, and I want you to keep them. What he's saying right here is this, is in the hour of trial and suffering, Suffering, Jesus will keep you. Now listen, I don't know whether he's talking about the tribulation or not. I don't want you to get distracted by that. What I know is this, whether he's talking about that or not, there is a time of trial and tribulation coming in every one of our lives and Jesus has promised to keep you during it. It doesn't matter when that, I mean, it really doesn't matter when that is. The point is he has promised here to this church, you are going to go through a time of trial. You're gonna go through a time of suffering. And the one thing you need to know is this, I will not leave you, I will not forsake you, I will sustain you because my presence is unfailing. That it's gonna get hard, church. If you're gonna advance the kingdom of Christ, it's gonna be hard. That's not the question. The question is, is will Jesus be with me? And the answer is yes. And in the same way that because I had my big brother, I feel this courage and invincibility, Jesus wants the church to walk with that because they know he's with them. He's with you. It's an unending, unfailing commitment and presence. And again, going back to Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And then you know how he ends? And lo, I will be with you, even to the end of the age. So it's almost like the authority of Jesus is to give us the confidence to go charge the gates of hell and advance the kingdom. And the presence of Jesus is to comfort us when we realize that's not as easy as we thought it was. When that costs us something, when there's a time of suffering and trial, we are comforted by the unfailing presence of Jesus Christ. He says, weak and suffering church, be courageous because of my presence. The last one is this, and we'll be done. It is the reward of Jesus is unmatched. Write that down. The reward of Jesus is unmatched talked about his greatness, his commitment, his presence, and here is his reward. The reward of Jesus is unmatched. That's verses 11 through 13. (laughs) He gives three specific promises to the church. If they remain faithful, be steadfast until the end. If they hold fast, hold fast. Remember all throughout these chapters saying, hold fast, hold fast, hold fast. Be faithful. Three, Three different promises summarized in three words. Crown in verse 11 pillar in verse 12, and name in verse 12 as well. I'm coming soon, he says. Hold fast what you have. Hold fast, hold on. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged so that no one may seize your crown. It's a promise that you get a crown if you hold fast. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Revelation 19 talks about that as well. Three promises to those who hold fast, a name, a pillar, and a crown. Listen, I'm just gonna talk to you very quickly. The crown is a reference to the reward 
the victor's crown for those who are faithful and consistent until the end. That's it. He says, listen, you are gonna run hard and if you run hard and you're faithful and you don't give up and you don't disqualify yourself, you come to the end and you may not get any reward on this side of heaven, but when you get to heaven, you will get the victor's crown. You'll get the victor's crown. You will have well done, good and faithful servant. And let me just tell you this, there's no way you can know this except believing it by faith. The crown that you receive from the Lord will be more valuable to you than anything else this world ever offered you. You fail to be faithful in the cause of Christ because of a desire to get approval from someone else and someday you will look back and despise that approval because you received the crown of the victor. He says, I will make you a pillar. There's all kinds of things we could say. The point is this, is that there is a stability to the people of God. There's a stability to you that you are lasting, that God has made you stable and God has made you secure. He's saying, I'm gonna build my kingdom on you. Nothing is gonna shake you for all of eternity. You are safe and secure in the arms of the Lord in the midst of all the turmoil of this life. There is a stability and a security about the people of God. They cannot be shaken because they belong to him. And there is a name that is given to them. It's not our name. We will be marked with the name of Jesus Christ because he is the victor. He is the authoritative one. He is the holy one. He is the transcendent one. And the victor is gonna ensure our victory by uniting us with him. And the name that will be put upon us is the name that is given to Jesus Christ. So it will be known that we are the people of Jesus Christ. There will be vindication. His reward is unmatched. I think, I, I really feel like, and especially you read the Sermon on the Mount, if Jesus could just get us to understand anything, it's this. Listen, be willing to sacrifice now because everything you get later is just better. It's just better. It's just better. And there's no way you can know that except believe it by faith. It's better. Suffer now, sacrifice now, because what Jesus has for you is better. He has an unmatched reward that is far greater than anything else the world has to offer you. He's trying to say, listen, look at my greatness and look at my commitment and my presence and my reward and may that fill you with, with courage. You see, the point of this letter is to encourage you. You know, you know the word encourage means to fill someone with courage. When you encourage someone, you're putting courage in them. You're taking someone faint-hearted and speaking a word into their life and fill them with courage. That's what Jesus is doing. He's looking at a faint-hearted church and he's trying to encourage them. And don't you feel your need for this? I mean, I just, all week, I'm just feeling my need for courage. I just, I need courage to, to be the husband God has called me to be. I need, I need courage to be a father. I need courage to be a pastor. I need courage to be a man of God. I need courage to share the gospel. We just, everything in our life demands courage. And it is not by picking yourself up by your bootstraps and giving yourself a good pep talk and making you feel better about yourself. It comes from a right view of Jesus Christ. It makes you feel invincible because of his presence and power and reward that is given to you. So my question is, why are we not living with more core courage? And why is it that when given the opportunity to share the gospel, we don't say anything? Why? I don't get that about myself. I don't understand that. She's been wrestling with this. Why is that the case? Why, why? Listen, there's one group of people who should be remarkably courageous with an absence of fear and an absence of insecurity and an absence of worry and fret. Why? Because of who we are in Jesus Christ. We can't lose. We always win. So he says to them, there is an open door that has been given to you. Call to be courageous. Now, now, here's why I want to call you to respond this morning. Listen, 
Some of you need to have the courage to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. You, you need to have the courage to step up and come and talk to someone about your relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not confident in your relationship with Christ. You're afraid of what that means. You're afraid of what it would be like if people knew that you didn't know Jesus Christ. People will rejoice in that. And frankly, they probably know it too. I mean, some of you are the ones that someone was raising their hand begging for you to get to Christ, come to Christ this morning. Some of you need to have the courage to step up and give your life to Jesus. Some of you need to have the courage to just share the gospel this week. The prayer guide that I gave out this week has two prayers for you. Number one, that we would be an evangelistic church. Number two, that you would pray for open doors and have the courage to walk through them. And I'm just gonna ask this morning when we stand and respond in just a second, that if you need to give your life to Jesus Christ, have the courage to do that. Listen, come and talk to one of us. Let us lead you the way. If you need to have the courage to share the gospel with you, would you just get on your knees and say, God, make me a courageous, lion-hearted man or woman of God. Listen, our culture desperately needs those. I pray that we would be some. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.